Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, just want to start today with some good news. The Other People app has a brand new design. Have you seen that yet? Do you have the Other People app? The Other People app is free. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. They just appear as if by magic. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You get the most recent 50 episodes of the program for free when you get the app. You get 50 episodes for free. The most recent 50, free. And then if you want to access everything, if you want to stream the full archives, nearly 400 episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month, access to everything. You can hear my conversations with writers like Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, David Shields, Ben Fountain, Jess Walter, Jonathan Lethem, Edward Jodantica, Susan Orlean, Tao Lin. The list goes on. The Other People app. Brand new version. Brand new iteration. Very, very good looking. Very, very alluring. Why am I talking like this? I want you to get the app. The app itself is free. Sign up for premium. Support the show. That is not free, but it's very cheap. I would appreciate that. Let's get started with today's program. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Everybody, here we go again. This is it, this is other people, this is how you tolerate your commute, this is slowly building an audience. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy, I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to have you in my company. Even though you're not actually in my company, you know what I mean. I have a great show for you today. Carmiel Banaski is my guest. Her debut novel, her red-hot debut novel, The Suicide of Claire Bishop, is available now from Dezank Books. It is the official uh, September selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are unaware, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. You can sign up for that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days for only $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book for those of you doing the math. That's a great deal. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of uh, earbuds and headphones. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code OTHERPPLE, and get 33% off 
of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Improve your audio situation. So, it's late in the day as I record this. Late in the day I tend to fade. Uh, I'm hanging on. I had a long night with the baby last night. Uh, he, it was weird cause you know, he's getting a little bit older. So there are moments or there are days where he does sleep in longer chunks of time. We had like a six hour chunk last week. And then last night, uh, it was like a five and a half hour chunk of time. And then he woke up at two in the morning. I got up with him. I fed him a bottle. Usually at two in the morning, uh, you know, you feed the baby a bottle. The baby goes right back to sleep once the bottle's done. But last night, uh, I fed him uh, a bottle, and he was just wide-eyed. He was he was wide awake, and he looked at me for uh, two hours. It's like he was up. Wasn't tired. Got five and a half hours of sleep. Had a bottle. He was ready to go. Uh, that's fine. You know, babies sometimes sleep in uh, erratic patterns. There's nothing new. Uh, about that or even noteworthy. But what's uh, what I'd like to just bring to your attention is the fact that I had to sit uh, in a rocking chair in a dark room for two hours in the middle of the night with another human being staring at me without cease. And uh, it just, it brought, you know, it made me aware of the fact that it is unnerving to have someone staring at you for two hours and you can't have a conversation with them. I don't care if it's a baby. <laughs> I don't care if it's my baby. I was just like, it was, it was giving me the creeps. He just wanted to look at me. And, you know, I, I that's sort of sweet, too. I'm not discounting the uh, sweetness factor. But just try it sometime with a uh, baby... Or just with another human being. Set your alarm for 2 a.m., get up, sit in a darkened room, but, you know, darkened, but with enough light that you can see each other, obviously. And then just stare at each other. See how that goes for you. Two hours. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Carmiel Banaski. Her book, her novel, her debut is called The Suicide of Claire Bishop, available now from Dezank Books. Uh, it's getting glowing reviews and uh, just very thrilled for her and excited to have had the chance to talk to her at this moment as she is launching her literary career. This is Carmiel Banaski, and her novel, one more time, is called The Suicide of Claire Bishop. It wasn't bad at all. It was easy to be a grad student there, and um, and I taught, and I was a nanny for a while. So I you've did, done a lot of things. I did all the New York things, yeah. Right. I lived, the first two years, uh, I lived in the top floor of a... Um, Upper East Side building where all the other nannies lived that worked for different families in the building. And so wait, the, the so nannies I, were up on the top floor. Yeah, and usually the, don't they put the nannies in the bottom? Like you guys had the penthouse level. It was it was not a nice top floor. Oh, but it did lead out to the roof, which was cool. Okay, um, so but I could, lived you, in a closet. You could jump easily if things I weren't. I could jump easily, yeah. exactly. And um, yeah, and it wasn't a group living situation. We all lived in our own closets, and there was a bathroom. There was no, there was a really horrible little scary hallway. That you had a shared bathroom. Yes. Oh my god. And then, and then you know, I can not also, that that's that bad, but I mean, it is kind of bad. Well, it's with four other, five other women, and then, uh, and then who I never saw. They were all working probably more hours than I was. Um, and these fucking people in the, on the Upper East Side have bucks too. They have so much money. They have so much money. They could put it. They could put some money into the nanny's quarters. Give you guys all a bathroom. They could have yes. Um, and I could hang out in the nice apartment, but then I would have to always be on if yes. I was around the kids. You so. got to be professional. Yeah. At and least you can go into your shared bathroom and have a moment to yourself. <laughs> right. Exactly. Go stand on the roof. Oh man. <laughs> that closet was, it was a little depressing, but I, I took that job because I wanted to be writing uh-huh. and I only worked five, six hours a day in the afternoon. So I had, you know, until 3 PM when I picked the kids up from school to myself. Okay. So I wrote under my little loft bed. I don't know what became of those stories, but... Um, like apprentice it, years. Right. Yeah. And then I think that at that point I finally convinced myself I should go to grad school, and I applied and went to Hunter after that. Okay. So let's let's back up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Born in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Your parents, you said uh, you know earlier, uh, were a little bit square. <laughs> yeah, they're a little square. Normcore. They're a little normcore. Well, my dad, in his middle age, became uh, much more spiritual. So he, what did he went do? through some kind of midlife crisis. And, um, well, he tried everything. He tried Hinduism, Buddhism, lots of different kinds of meditation. Um, Where did he Ayurvedic land? Ayurvedic. Landing, we landed back at Judaism. Judaism. So really, really into Judaism. So now. you're so, Jewish by birth. Yes. So. And he went off on and did the whole like Jubu thing. He did the Jubu thing, which brought him back to full-on Judaism. Okay. And so he, you know, a lot of Jews don't find spiritualism in Judaism, um, and that's why they there's lots of Jubus. 
Um, but is he, he orthodox? Found, is he, I mean, now he goes to orthodox synagogue. He's not orthodox himself, okay. but he does a lot of the practices. So the orthodox is like that, because I see them all over Los Angeles. It's the black suits so, and the, I don't, what do you call the hair? There's many different types of orthodoxy. So okay. there's modern, modern orthodox, whereas uh-huh. regular clothes blends in with mainstream culture. Um, Hasidic. That's and, the Hasidic. Yeah, so, um, so I write about them in the book a lot. And, uh... They have the pais. The pais. And I think I'm saying that right. And I, the hats. I got no problem. I mean, which has a name that I can't remember right now. The fur so, hats or the... Yeah. Um, and... I got no problem with any of it except the fact that they wear this stuff in the summer. I always feel like you're so hot. This is... Like I'm watching these right. people walk the streets of Los Angeles in these like wool black suits. It's true. And one rule in Judaism, as far as I'm concerned, especially on the high holidays when you fast... Uh-huh. Uh... Is that God or whatever doesn't want you to suffer uh-huh. for Judaism? Like you're not supposed to hurt yourself in any way, health-wise. So if you're gonna have a heat stroke, you're right. Yeah, he doesn't want that. No. Or she or get some shorts, something, some black shorts. Like you know, yeah. there's a way to there's a way to <laughs> uh, adapt this outfit. You know. Um, so how did that how did that affect you? I mean, because you were raised like not were you practicing as a kid? Or was it sort of yeah. like they let it they let it go and then he came back to it on his own? And... No, we always went to synagogue, um, but conservative synagogue, so that's middle of the road. Reform is the least religious and and um, so you or were... I, I shouldn't say least religious, but um, doesn't follow at all um, literally what the Bible says. Okay. So. And you were the middle of the road. Yes. So conservative is probably any average Jew that you meet. In L.A., probably was raised as a conservative Jew. You, yeah, you speak Hebrew? No. no. I read it, though. You can read it. So so to have my bat mitzvah, you have to learn to read Hebrew and be able to read from the Torah and be able to sing the tropes. Can you sing for us? No. Come on. <laughs> I do not remember. <laughs> it sounds very... Like it always sounds... Let me, uh, if I think of a line... By the end of us talking, I will. <laughs> like there's there's one from the Goonies that Chunk sings. Remember? Oh, that's the only thing I know. But I, I just like it's just all phonetics to me, and I it's, you know it doesn't make any sense. Um. So anyway, I can't believe I just called out the Goonies <laughs> in the context of the Torah. Well, it's also an Oregon reference. There we so go. There, go. there we, exactly. <laughs> it's all coming for uh, full circle. So, uh, you had a bat mitzvah. Yes. What you just? It's a party. You're, you're uh, now you, a woman. you have to study for four years Damn. to after school, um, you know, and you study more and more towards the end. And it's like the Jewish quinceanera. Yes. Yeah. It is very much. I mean, it's a coming of age ceremony. Right. So you come of age by reading from the Torah, which only adults do. And then, um, and then you have a big party. Yeah. And you just get, you get money and stuff, right? Well, yeah, you get money. I mean, in Portland, it's a little different than L.A. I think <laughs> or like there's a Upper movie East Side, about, New York, right? Like, where you have like I, there was somebody I was reading about. You know, I was reading about like high end bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in Los Angeles, and like Bob Dylan playing at somebody's bar, you know bar mitzvah, and they can get pretty yeah. pricey, like absurd. <laughs> but the average like suburban bat mitzvah, it's just like an envelope with a hundred bucks from like your aunt. Exactly. Okay. Um, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it was. It was uh, something I think you can be proud of as a kid. Uh-huh. You accomplished this big thing that took a lot of time. Okay. And so then your dad, 
you know, in the middle of his life gets like way more intense or he goes away from it, explores other things mm -hmm. and then gets way more intense into the Judaism. Yes. Um, at, at a, in, in a manner that distinguishes him from the rest of your family. Yes. How does that affect you? My mother makes fun of him a, a bit. Okay. Um, for me, I think it brought us the, the spiritual side of it brought us closer together. You know, I was interested in spirituality and, um, and he was meditating and, I mean, this was back when I was probably 18, came back from college to visit or something. So I suddenly went to did, meditation suddenly, classes with him for oh, you a did. bit, you know, so okay. it was something that we could share. All right. Um, you're like, dad, you're a Hindu all of a sudden. Right. And, um, and as far as the Judaism goes, yeah, I think it's great. I think it helps him with any kind of anger management issues he had when he was younger, um, which I don't you know, really remember seeing much of, but he has always felt that way. And so I think it's just helped him in his life. Yeah. And what he, does he do? Does he do like the prayers every, like, how does it, like, what does he actually do? He goes to synagogue a lot. Okay. I don't know. I, since I'm not there, I'm not sure what he does every day. I know he does his own meditations every day. I don't know if he puts on tefillin every day. I don't think he does. Those puts are on the what? tefillin is, um, they're the prayer boxes that go on your, wrist and your head and and there's a kind of leather strap that wraps between them so they're black boxes with a prayer inside well, I did. i've never and even you, seen and this. you say prayers while you put them on you daven you, you pray with them on i think and uh, i'm talking about things i don't know yeah. enough about but um and then you know and with his the religious stuff yeah i think it's great he just is learning to be a better person and to just be open to anybody and everything. And he texts me often, uh, especially now with the book. Like verses? He's, Does he text you verses? No, he, he's really proud of the book and he, and he knows I'm a little anxious about all of it and it's all new. And, um, so he texts me about, you know, he sees God everywhere. And so he texts me God or whatever, you know, quotation <laughs> marks, because he knows I'm not Trying completely to be, comfortable with right, God. Right. And, um, and I don't, I'm, an agnostic and uh so he tries to make it he tries to be inclusive so god or whatever is everywhere yeah. <laughs> uh, he sounds know. cool he is cool so He's did a cool he guy. yeah did he uh like the stuff that he did when he went off and dabbled as some of us are you know mm -hmm. inclined to do where you go off and you kind of try on different hats did he leave that behind when he went back to judaism or did he like keep some of it and incorporate it into like his own little like um, you know amalgam of stuff I think it's incorporated. It yeah. is, okay. Or so, I think he found the way that Judaism already has it incorporated. Yeah. And that it's all pretty much the same language if you are listening right. Okay. And then what's the, what about Kabbalah? Is he into that? I don't know. Does he have a red string? <laughs> I don't know if uh, if he's gotten into the Kabbalah. I know that to be serious about it, you have to study for years and years. Okay. Um, otherwise, apparently, it will drive you insane if you actually read it without having prepared to read it really yeah so that's that, what they say that's what they say so that's why it's so funny that like the madonna kabbalah phase like kabbalah <laughs> in one easy step or whatever yeah, it was yeah, so yeah. funny whatever happened to that like all of a sudden celebrities all had the red <laughs> string like i know that because of los angeles and you'd see the people with the red string on their wrist and you're like okay yeah and that sort of faded i didn't know about the red string does yeah. that mean they took the class that, that means that you're mean? into kabbalah that's your signifier oh. so if you see a red string on somebody's wrist that's what it is and i don't know what it means but it was big during the Madonna Kabbalah moment. Huh. Because you get a red string when you go into um, Jerusalem, when you go to the wall. 
Yeah. So I don't know if that has to do with it or not. Maybe, yeah. I went to Jerusalem. Yeah. No one gave me a red string. They're like, <laughs> he's sorry. a Gentile. He's a Gentile. <laughs> no. He looks Everybody baffled. Everybody gets a red string. He looks bewildered and pale. <laughs> um, I did, though. I went to the, I went to the, West, uh, the Western Wall, and I walked. You know, it's one of these iconic things. And I walked, you know, through the old city following the signs. That was the first place I went. I was like, I got to go mm-hmm. look at this wall. And I show up and I uh, take out my phone or my camera, I guess my phone, and I was going to take a picture. And a Hasidic man, older, like white beard, like hissed at me. He was like, no, like in, in Hebrew, you know, and like I was like, whoa. And I guess like, I think on that day, it might have been a Sunday or something, mm-hmm. you don't t- or maybe a Saturday, like the Sabbath. It, it right? would be Saturday. Yeah, yeah, the Sabbath. He's like, don't take pictures of the wall, like no photos. I was like, okay, this is like my intro to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I walked in and like within literally within a minute, like had violated the rules and was getting like called out. But, um, it was, you know, it's one of these things though, where in addition to just making like a, you know, faux pas, you have, you have like a context for the wall, you know, even if you're not Jewish, like you've seen it on TV, you've seen pictures, you've heard about it, you've read about it. And then you show up and you're staring at it. And I had no idea what to do or how to feel. It was really strange. That was the feeling that I had. Like, okay, this is significant, but I don't know how to interact with this. Right. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. same, same thing with the the Temple Mount. Like, I went up there and, you know, you know you're looking at history. I, I think I'm, you know, I don't have enough, uh, you know, historical grounding to really be able to know where I'm standing and what I was looking at, which is a shame. Um, maybe if I had that, it would mean more. But I just remember feeling like, I don't know, there's something surreal about it, like looking at this thing and knowing that it's supposed to carry all this meaning, but yet not really feeling it in an authentic way within myself. Right. We're fed images and there's a supposed to there um, that maybe is getting in the way of an actual experience. Well, and there's also like, you know, you're in the the little narrow um, streets, I guess you call them, or walkways of the old city and you're winding your way through. It's like a labyrinth. And... um, the history is palpable and you can smell it. It feels like you're in another world. Everyone's like, you know, there's, there's that element of it where you're like, Oh my God, it's like people look like they're right out of the Bible and mm-hmm. they're like selling things. And like, I feel like I'm in a market and you know, in Jerusalem, I guess I am in Jerusalem, but you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm in a Bible story, but then mixed with that is like, they're selling like Jesus Christ bobblehead dolls and like, right. you know, like literally. And like, yeah. you see like weird shops that sell t-shirts with like United States, like college football teams on them. And it's very kitschy. Right. And so it's this combination of the two. And I found it like a, like a little, uh, it put me off balance. Right. Yeah. I think there has to be a personal connection or, or a story that you have, um, felt invested in in some way even just as a reader or listener yeah to feel anything about um a monument right uh-huh. i guess in israel you go to israel i, I haven't been in since 2000 that was the, the last kibbutz? time i went i stayed on a kibbutz for a little while in high school i spent two months there so in probably 97 or something this is before your dad this went, is before yes. your dad like made the, the transition right okay when you know we were still in the nest and you know <laughs> Uh, so during those two months, I felt connected to Israel. I really did. And when I didn't have any connection to it, I have some family there, but, um, but before I went, I didn't really feel much about it at all. Um, and, but during those two months, uh, it was a school and we went around the country hearing stories in the places where they took place. So really intimate, tiny classes, 
um, and the lessons were told as stories. History became um, this real narrative to latch on to. So there were certain characters, I've never thought about it like this, but certain characters in that history that I really connected to. And like so, who? Uh, like the Rachel the poetess. And I, I <laughs> you're going to have to look it up later, but she wrote um, beautiful songs and poems for Israel. And uh, I just, I like don't when? remember. When, when, when did Rachel the poetess um, dwell? In the um, 50s. Okay. So this isn't like, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but, but like uh, semi-recently. Yes. And so there was, yeah, I just um, well, somehow I mean, I connected it, to her story and, and yeah, I remember feeling emotional about it. Well, yeah, and Israel's a relatively young country. It is a young country. Right. Um, and a beautiful place. And like... It's physically beautiful. Yeah. It's stunning. And, um, and small. Yeah. Like just teeny tiny. Like between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, it's like a half hour, 45 minutes. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I, I don't know. I went there for four days. It was kind of a whirlwind trip. Why did you go? I was doing book research. Okay. I was. I thought I was writing a novel about a man who tries to sell one of his kidneys in Israel. Oh, oh, in Israel. Yeah, so you mentioned the kidneys on your other. Yeah, intros yeah. And <laughs> no, no. It's like this long, like horrible saga. Uh, but <laughs> basically, like I had read that they, uh, because of like burial practices, they put the bodies in the ground quickly and they don't violate the corpse to remove organs post mortem. There's mm-hmm. actually a need for black market organs. Oh, fascinating. So, yeah. And plus, it was just like, what a perfect third act, you know, go to the Holy Land, sell an organ. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. So I need to get, uh, I clearly need to spend thousands of dollars to go on a whirlwind <laughs> trip to Israel. <laughs> sounds uh, like a But I'm glad I went. I'm glad visual. I went. Yeah. I'm glad I went. And I thought, uh, you know, I have like a Catholic background. And uh, of course, like every, like pretty much every major religion in the world has a stake in that place, it seems like. Um, yeah. But I just... I don't know. I, I found myself having a hard time connecting. I don't. I never have been able to connect with my own uh, like Catholic roots in a really authentic way, like a powerful way. Have you connected with any kind of culture like that in the way that you want? Uh, or history, or I mean, Buddhism makes the most sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think, like okay, this is a system and this is logical. It's not really. It doesn't really seem like a religion to me seems like a, something you do, not something you believe. Um, but I would say in a cruder way, uh, the Grateful Dead, <laughs> jam band culture. Love it. <laughs> as much as people hate it, it's just like crazy church. That's really what I, that's really what I think it is. I think it's people wanting to have like ecstatic experience, feel connected, celebrate life. So you did go on tour and well no i mean mini tour i was never that hardcore like i would do like a long weekend but i'm not spending a summer yeah you know in a jeep (laughs) um but no but i mean like those just those experiences like to me at the age of 18 and it could have been a lot of bands maybe but it was just um a lot of people really high in the same space listening to music kind of felt like what i had hoped church would always be Mm-hmm. even without knowing it you know what i'm saying it was like oh so this is this feels authentic people are really having visions you know like people are really connecting with something and having a good time and breaking it felt like some sort of breaking through uh, i would say i went to the burning man festival in 1999 there's something mm-hmm. similar to that um a similar kind of vibe uh yeah. where and not for everybody and not all of it i mean there's a lot of i mean 
some of it was gross and unsettling. And the same mm-hmm. thing goes with the dead. I mean, to say the least, you know, you're standing in line to get into the show and maybe people like being brought out on stretchers. You know, like, and maybe you could say the same phrase about any religion. Yeah. So but something's it, unsettling about it. But yeah, there's but, this community. I think it's about community. I think so, too. We're talking a lot about religion. We are. And but, I'm really glad we talked about Israel without talking about the politics. We probably well, right all now, agree. It's hot right now. The politics are very divisive right now. Yeah. But we won't get into that. Let's not get into that yet anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll wait till <laughs> the end. That's less fun. By the way, when I, when I mentioned toe rings earlier in the context of Portland, <laughs> did I offend you? <laughs> oh, very much so. No. No, okay. <laughs> I don't anyway. think you can offend me, so. Okay, good. I mean, I'm hard to offend as well. Uh, I didn't want to reduce Portland to toe rings. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. It is your home. I'm all right with the stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, because there is something to them. I mean, I used to live in Boulder. Um, there's a lot of toe rings there. I think I wore a toe ring at one point. Sure. <laughs> of course you did. But it was a cute little butterfly I wore a, I wore a necklace. Something. I wore a necklace. It was like clay baked. I don't even know what you call it, but it had pot leaf on it. <laughs> I had one of those when I was like 18. Yeah. I think I had like pot leaf paraphernalia when I was really young and I didn't know what it was. You just thought it was pretty. Yeah, I just thought it was pretty. You ever a hippie? I, I mean, you have to be. I didn't know that I was a hippie until I went to college in Arizona. Okay. And everybody called me a hippie. And then I liked it. And that was my style. It separated me from everybody else. So I embraced it. But Like the long skirts and the... The long skirts. I dyed my hair purple. I... You hula hoop? I know. Okay. Though <laughs> um, so hula hoop is a fad right now. At least in New York, as a exercise. I was just going to say, I'm <laughs> sure it is. That and pole dancing. Like yeah. You just get yourself in you know, summer shape or whatever. <laughs> uh, I had girlfriends in college, uh, like girls who were friends, not actual like uh, intimate girlfriends. But um, there was like you know every party, like at around two in the morning, the hula hoops would come out. <laughs> It was a thing for like a, you know, a winter. You were more of a hippie than me then. Uh, yeah. I mean, for <laughs> a, like for a very concentrated period of time. Yeah. And I always, uh, I often defend the hippies on this show. I think they're easily caricatured and don't often get uh, praised for their virtues. What are their virtues? Yeah, good instincts. I agree. But... Yeah, good instincts. I, I think uh, ecologically, um, I think I think that the impulse or the desire to live closer to nature and to be less ideological that, that's a feeling I always that I often got hmm. um, though though I mean hippie culture and its subcultures can be super ideological so I don't want to like paint it with too broad of a brush but right. to me it like to me it felt like a reaction against like rigid uh, judeo-christian upbringings and hierarchies like at least in its like early phases and then of course these things splinter and mutate and everything else Sure. Yeah. I mean, the hippie of the 60s is very different than the hippie Correct. today. And I think there is still a sub, sub, sub culture of hippie. But I think that for the most part, it's been incorporated into into hipster, into the local movement, right. Um, right. the tiny house movement. You know, that's all Portland. But this tiny house movement <laughs> fascinates me. Yeah. I mean, I can't do it because I have a family. Like that would be... That would be crazy. That would be intense. But there's a documentary about a guy in Boulder who built yeah, a house. Yeah, I watched it. Yeah, he yeah. built it. It's like the size of a closet, but he lives simply. Yeah. And then I've seen um, in like the New York Times, like whatever it is, the home section or whatever, they will sometimes feature these people like in Portland who mm-hmm. like it's always it's always like a, a young couple married who decided to <laughs> radically simplify their life. And now they have this like 
beautifully furnished yet tiny house with like and it's got like cool like rooftop garden and, you and super clever places to put their pots and pans yeah 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 <laughs> you, you want to live there yes. you know and like you're sort of like you, whenever i read about the homes in like a magazine or a newspaper i always find myself just like aching with like envy yeah bitterness. well it seems it's sort of an escape fantasy for right. me to have a tiny home somewhere and just write and everybody leaves me alone <laughs> have you seen have you seen the uh pod homes like the like they look like tiny little airstream trailers. Oh, yes, I think so. They were yeah. like this was on the internet like not too long ago. Someone mm-hmm. showed up in my Twitter feed and I looked I spent like 10 minutes just like staring at one of these pods like oh my god, like I think the I possibilities saw it are endless. In the context of um people just bringing their friends together and having a friend community of pod homes. Yeah. So they just buy a small lot and they all fit but they all have their separate spaces so they can get away from each other. I don't know. I feel like I've been thinking a lot about refugees, like the past couple of days, with mm-hmm. all this stuff in the news, like these images. You've been, have you been watching this? Not enough. I've been a little. Buried, Don't. I mean, it's, it's honestly, I... it'll it'll ruin you because it's like uh, the images are horrific of like bodies washing up on short kids drowning and stuff. But it's oh, like, God. okay, there's all these people have nowhere to go. Let's get some let's get some pod homes going at the very least. How about some trailers? Can we can we cough up enough money for some trailers? Yeah, somebody can. Somebody can. I'll, I'll I'll pitch in, you know. Yeah. But I'm thinking like maybe pods are the answer. Like get some different size. I mean, obviously you need a bigger pod for a bigger family, or each kid can have their own pod. <laughs> you could make like a flower arrangement. Like each pod yeah. is like a petal. Oh, yeah. it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You could paint them. <laughs> I'm sure that there is some kind of nonprofit that is working towards tiny homes for refugees. There's got it has to exist. One would hope. One would hope. So, um, getting back to you, do you have siblings? <laughs> I do. How many? I have uh, one brother. Okay. And what's he like? He's five years old, younger than me, and uh, lives in San Francisco now. He is maybe he's a little more mature than me in some ways, in that he's very he's financially stable. Oh, really? Um, he you know has a what a real job. I know what a dick. (laughs) (laughs) But he's also a great writer and is what does he do? Creative and uh, he does PR for. A venue in San Francisco that um, it just hosted a farm-to-table conference. Okay. And in Portland, he was living there. Just he just moved to San Francisco a month ago. Um, in Portland, he was doing um, PR for bands that came through. Oh, wow. most bands. Hip. So he's very yeah, connected. He's hip. He does. He's he, like a um, good social he's life. He's a kind of like Jufro that he puts in a little ponytail. Samurai bun. Yeah, samurai oh, bun. God. Does he have facial hair? Yeah. Yes, he does. <laughs> Samurai Bun. I can see him right now, handing out leaflets. Yeah. Hanging well, out. Well, he the has green interns room. to hand out leaflets. Oh, yeah, he doesn't least. do yeah. the leaflets. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he approves the leaflets. Yes. That the interns he might hand out. Get to do the graphics for the leaflets if he's lucky. You guys get along. Yeah. Okay. Do you but, ever? Do you ever? Uh, because you've chosen this road. I mean, you mentioned financial stability. Like being a writer is not a road that lends itself towards such things. No. Um, how do you manage that? Um, so right now I'm teaching at LA Writers Group, um, and I'm also doing admin and curriculum, and which is great. And it's part time. I make my own hours. So I moved here, or when I was planning to move here, I just reached out to every kind of organization like that, and um, I just wanted a job that I could make my own hours. And I don't have a car. I didn't want to. No. How did you get over here? I, d- I took a lift, and I'll take the bus back. Oh my god. So. That's bold. The bus is great. It's a lot easier and you can read cleaner than anybody 
thinks and yeah i can read i is can it, people it, watch i feel like there's crazy people on the bus like every time there's I, always crazy people yeah i guess on public transportation and i don't want to over you know oversell that point but like when i'm especially when i used to live in hollywood i would be like getting ready to cross the street and like a city bus would pull up and i would look inside of it and i would just be like there's yeah. like a, there's always like a few people you're like are they going to pull a weapon out is what's going to happen no, it's not that they're bad. not going to pull a weapon out. Okay. That's the bad rap that crazy people get. <laughs> well, but I mean, I know, I know. I, I mean, who knows? 90, it does happen. 95%, yes. 99% of the time, they're not armed. But we keep seeing, like, I keep hearing these stories. You know, these things keep coming across the news, and it's like... That's true. There's so many guns in this country. Like, there are people in this city, it's like, yeah, they might not pull out a weapon. It's just because they don't have one. Um I don't know. That's probably. I don't want to be shitty about people who are mentally ill, but well, it's sort it's of what my book to, is about. It is so <laughs> about, so I, about I am... people being shitty toward the mentally ill. <laughs> well, it's just sort. Of, the project of the book was to broaden the idea of um, what crazy means and and how that it can be relatable. Um, and you know that is the image we get. The only news we get about anyone with mental illness is when they're violent. Yeah. which is so, so rare. But if it's not news when they're not violent. So, right. of course, those are the... I mean, that's probably the the same story for minorities, for you know all sorts of types of people who are portrayed only in one way that's in the right. media. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's sort of a project of mine to um, think about that Why? and talk about it. Uh, I've had friends who have suffered from mental illness and... Um, like what kind? Schizophrenia. Okay. So the one of the, I have two characters in my book, um, two protagonists, and we switch off between their points of view. And one of the protagonists is a man with schizophrenia. And so you had a friend who had schizophrenia. I had two friends who had schizophrenia. Yeah. That's not something you hear every day. Yeah, it's not, and yet, I don't know. It's not that uncommon either. Just childhood friends. Uh, friends that I met in my teens and early adulthood. Okay. Um, and did you know when you met them that this was the case or did the symptoms start to manifest as you, after you had become friends? I did not know. Um, with one friend, I was already writing this book and, and he told me about his disease because I was writing it and he was so happy I was writing it and that he wanted to help me and with research and, um, and so I at least got to pick his brain a little and make sure that it was okay with him that this book, this type of thing would exist. I also got the blessing from my other friend too. Um, and a lot of what's in the book is um, sort of derived from his experiences. Okay. So like the crude understanding of schizophrenia is like multiple personalities. No, but that's v very, very wrong. Right. So that's not, It's yeah, right. So it's used as... You're right. I, I've, you know, like when, she's when you schizo. Have, yeah, she's, she's schizo. She's, she's got voices in her head. Two she, different ways. Yes. Yeah. So what is what is it really? So it's really when you have uh, mostly auditory hallucinations. Sometimes they manifest visually, um, but any other can manifest as voices, um, as many voices, uh, often negative. The, so th this what I'm describing now is a more extreme episode. So um, this is when it's probably less manageable, um, is when it's, uh, there's probably just a clutter of voices and they're often really mean to 
the person who's hearing them. Uh, really oh my God, I'm schizophrenic. Self-deprecating, <laughs> right. No, so it is, in some ways, it's relatable. Sure. Even because of that. We all have, like, mean voices in our heads. Yeah. Um, for people with schizophrenia, it's really, they feel external and they um, feel, yeah, just like they're, they're this target of um, hatred sometimes. and uh, Or um, maybe with paranoid schizophrenia, you'll... Uh, there's actually um, commands that the voices say. Um, that's not always the case. And um, sometimes people will hear conversations that they heard earlier in the day or something, so echoes of sounds. Um, you, you, you've never experienced this? No. You ever experienced any mental illness? No. But... You know, I experience anxiety, you know. And, yeah, like and, in regular, like, low-grade depression sometimes. Yeah. Or the normal human range of... See, I think it's the normal human range, but it's still not something that we talk about. Yeah. Like, I really like talking about anxiety and depression because uh, I don't think that people, besides writers, talk about it. Um, I don't think... I think there's still a stigma. Everyone's anxious. Everyone's anxious. Everyone has um, depression. Depression. Everyone just has these negative thoughts. And earlier we were talking about unwanted thoughts. Everybody has unwanted thoughts, scary thoughts, you know, and and we don't talk about these things. And then they might, uh, you know, grow in someone's mind because they think that they're a bad person for having these thoughts or that those thoughts are them. Or um, So I just think the more transparent and the more open we are about it how do you handle it the less alone people will feel how do you like if you're anxious about something like what do you do like I mean, because there, there is a lot of anxiety that goes with being a writer like is someone going to publish this is it going to sell how am right. i going to pay the rent all the, at every yeah. single stage of your writing life there's a new anxiety of a new course. monster yes. to worry about yeah um so right now of course it's just it's a more abstract anxiety about this thing that was mine and private is going to be out in the world and am I ready for that and um am I even ready to answer questions like this about my work and about the topics that I'm writing about and uh so all that causes me a lot of anxiety um and but I don't want that to be the only story about it I don't want to just say I'm anxious period so yes I'm anxious and I'm going to do these things about it those things include meditation I do TM uh, transcendental meditation you take the class yeah you did i did what did that cost you i got a scholarship they gave (laughs) scholarships i think it costs costs like 150 or 180 for four months in a row so it's still a lot of money for me that's a lot how much time did you spend it's a week of class and then you go once a month after that to another class or for a check-in do you really need to do the classes i think so yeah I, i don't know how you'd get a mantra Otherwise, I guess you could search for one online and that would be fine too. Or just make one up, right? Just two syllables. No, I don't think so. I don't know. It's like you've got to understand how brains work to know what two syllables would cause this kind of hypnosis. It's sort of a, you go under. It's a very, very strange experience. I've done a lot of other kinds of meditation and it's not like that. You know, and I have gotten some place with those other meditations, but with this, it's like immediate. I feel like I'm just hypnotized myself. 
Wow. It's very strange. Okay. <laughs> and it's, I don't want to make it sound culty. It's a little bit of the cult of LA that I've joined. But, totally. Um, I just talked to Carolina Vaslaviak. She's into the TM. Yeah. A lot of people. A Jer- lot of people. Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, so many. I, I know a lot of comedians and they, in the writing room, like half of them do TM. They'll take their lunch break together. Right. And do TM together. Like these, these very kind of manly men who maybe you didn't expect. And, um, so yes, that helps with anxiety, I think in the long term. Um, right now I need more grounding and I don't know. I'm sure there are other tools that I, I need just like putting your feet on the ground and because I'm just up here in my head all the time and I forget I have a body yeah. a lot of the time. I just don't use my body very much. I don't exercise much even though I should. And that also would help with anxiety. Um, but so just breathing deeply, counting your breaths, putting your feet on the ground and you read anything. No, I don't have anything I go to. Okay. What should I go to? I don't know. <laughs> Deepak Chopra. I well, I do. I listen to Tara Brock podcasts. What is that? Um, she's a psychologist, Buddhist lady, and she just is really wise and has lots of. I'm a Tara Brock proselytizer. Okay. So I'll check that out. Yeah, you should if you're just if you need a little help with anxiety. She just she does have she just gives you tools and she, each one is sort of the same but using different language. So at some point something will resonate and. Um, uh, so yeah, she just talks about how just actually finally seeing that you've lived your life just worried about shit all the time and missed your life in the process. What, why do we want to live our lives like that? No, yeah, it's not good. But so even though I finally have that awareness, I still worry about it all the time. It's (laughs) hard. It's like, it's like, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about this and it's like, everybody's got this stuff, the worries, uh, mm-hmm. The despair, the depression, feelings of unease, feelings of anger, like whatever the range of negative states is and afflictions that we have. Uh, and the question is like, what do we do with them? And then uh, how do they manifest? You know, and I think untended, they manifest negatively. Mm-hmm. Violence, self-harm, um, can't get out of bed. <laughs> Right. You know, overeating, uh, overconsuming in any number of ways. Uh, and that's like the other thing that I think like the conversation I was having yesterday led to is that like, it seems so obvious, like people feel these things and the vast majority of us, myself included, like as a way of coping with it, you seem to sort of want to distract yourself away from it as right. opposed to actually like looking at it and like sitting with it. Right, you and, have that, to... and that's not the way, but that's not the way to actually uh, transform it or like get better. Right. You have to lean into it. Yes. And, but it's also the work is in figuring out what to lean into because anxiety isn't really the emotion. Anxiety is the distraction, I think, from something you're not looking at. Um, at least that's what my friend says is, you know, when I'm really anxious, there must be some aspect of my life I'm not, I'm trying to steer clear of that I need to look at. Do you get insights into that kind of stuff when you're doing TM or is TM just like you're in a trance? Uh, TM, you, no, there's lots of thoughts that come. So you're not trying to fight thoughts necessarily. You're just trying to not attach. Um, you're just trying to 
what's called favoring the mantra. So whenever you realize you're thinking, then you just go back to the mantra. There's no berating yourself for thinking. There's no trying not to think. Um, so, so tons of thoughts come up, but those thoughts, I don't know if you're, if you should really give them much credence cause they're just, Static. um, well, they're, they're, the idea of TM is that the thoughts that come up while you're meditating are actual just stresses that are coming out. So thinking is actually your, you're working stress them out. Really, yeah, you're working out your stress by thinking and then going into the meditation and thinking again. Um, so they don't necessarily mean anything. Um, but do you ever yeah. have insights? Like, do you ever have, like, like, you're working on, like, I don't know, a book, or you're getting ready for a book publicity tour and you're nervous about it, or you're wondering what else can I do to help this thing along, and then, like, you're in the depths of your TM and suddenly it's like, aha. I guess I have, yeah. But they're the simplest, when you say them out loud, they're just the simplest ideas, and the, most of the time it's, everything's okay. <laughs> is the ins- you know just relax yeah just relax like everything's actually really awesome and you know there's such mushroomy thoughts too like we're all connected <laughs> we are you know that's what so, i'm saying the hippies yeah. everyone loves to make fun of them for being simplistic but it's like you know what we are all connected yeah so People so really it really um yeah it reminds me to not that i don't really have anything to be afraid of ever Except, except when, when I'm telling you right now, I'm like, well, except this, 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 and this, horrible things can happen, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, this weird fear, like the weird fear, like, and I think a lot of it is just fear of death. Yeah. Um, it's like an undercurrent in all human life, or most human life. You ever right. met somebody who's totally unafraid of death? Uh, my grandmother, um, when she was preparing to die, she was just ready, and she couldn't die. Her body just didn't let her. How old know? was she? 84 when she died or 86 and was um, it like a, just a bad illness and she's like okay or was she like all my friends and my spouse have died i'm just it like, was both, both both things yeah her uh, my grandpa had died years and years before and um yeah it was really sad in one con- i was really close with my grandmother and actually um i thought about her a lot with the book coming out because she just would have been so proud so now i'm thinking a lot about the people who are missing um but she did say, you know, my life was kind of over after he died, which was so many years ago, Ugh. which is so, so sad. And I know she found a lot of joy in life after that and had so much family and traveled everywhere. Um, but still a piece of her believed that. And um, but also it was her quality of life had just diminished completely. And um, and all, all our family had come to say goodbye already. And then you know, and then everyone's like, like looking at their watches, like. Well, and then so they can't come back, you know, like what? And yeah, she yeah, just, yeah. She wanted family around, but it um, wasn't quite possible. My mom um, was she in Portland? Lived too? really close, so she always went to visit her every day. But okay. Um. Uh. So yeah, so she was ready. She, she was, was ready. My, so I think ready. my grandma was ready too. My mom's mom, who was like ninety-one. I mean, you get to a point where all everyone you know practically has died. Like all the all of your contemporaries, at mm-hmm. least. And then your spouse dies. You're just like, okay, I had my time. Yeah. Like I mean. And new people come into your life. I um I'm really still close with the family who cared for her, who, who are her caretakers. Um, I'll see them all in Portland when I go read there, and um, so those people were her most recent friends in life, and they cared for her so deeply, and were just as important as the people who were from her childhood, who are no longer there. You know, so. 
So I guess there's still something to be said for just the connections that can be forged. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I've seen people lose people. I've lost people. Um, but I just, I think in particular of families I know who have lost sons, daughters, moms, dads, like whatever it is, you know, somebody in the family has died and I have these families in my mind and they all have kind of responded to it differently. And it, it kind of runs the gamut. Like some of them drew closer. Some of them splintered apart. Some of them moved through it and continued on like productively. Others like never quite let it go. Not that you can ever like fully let it go, but you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. some people, um, I think some people handled it better than others. Like I wonder why. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to do with awareness and, um, the people who I've seen handle death the most gracefully are the people who are like, were close to it, you know, really saw the death happen or at least were wanted to be present with the idea of it. Um, versus As opposed to saying, scared, don't talk to me about dying. You're not dying. You know, everything's fine. Right. Um, must be really a lot harder in a lot of ways. Well, it becomes a boogeyman. Yeah. You know? And I think like I've heard, and you know, I've heard, I've read, you know, you see in documentaries or like whatever it is, you'll hear people talk sometimes about being with a loved one when they pass away, like at the moment of passing. And I guess it's possible that it could be horrific depending on how the person dies. But most of the time they're like, there was some, something beautiful about it Mm -hmm. as painful as it was, you know, like there was something in that moment where it was like, Oh my God, I felt like the room crackled with energy or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, it wasn't, super dark or only like a dark experience it was also there was some beauty and some light in it yeah right yeah i mean i've I've never been in the room when someone has died, died but um but yeah that's what they say well and i also nice. i also often joke that like some of the best moments of my life have been at funerals yeah i think i've said that but like i always feel good at funerals yeah it's appeal like because it just it's just uh, you know um peels away all the bullshit People are realer, I feel like. Yeah, and the love is on the surface yes. more and um and a sense of you know, we only have so much time, so let's do this right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. And like yeah, people like the other thing when my son was born in uh July, uh I remember telling my wife, I was like, God, I feel like we really have friends. Because people are so nice to you when you have a kid. Yeah. Like, you know, you're like, oh, <laughs> people actually give a shit about us. Like, you know, like they're think like you're getting these text messages and people are like, we love you. We're so Aww. happy. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah. And then and you just go back into regular life and like, you never get text messages. Like <laughs> I guess you can't get them every day, but like I, I still like, have a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I still have a kid. Here he is. Like send you photos. But, um, it's funny how like uh perspective is fleeting, you know, like these epiphanies that you mm-hmm. have and these like, you know, warm moments or stretches of time where you feel like, you know, things are ordered and your priorities are right. And you can see with clarity, like what's most important to you. And then the fog returns sort of inevitably, at least for, you, yeah. kind of, you kind of go in and out of it. Well, that's why it has to be a practice, you know, it has to be a practice to bring up, um, yeah, I guess that's another way to combat anxiety is to have those reminders in your life at hand, somewhere on hand. What do you mean those reminders? Um, you know, to be able to sit and think to yourself okay uh you know life is good i have these friends and this community and i have all these great so i guess um whatever that feeling is at the funeral how can you take it 
into a practice of reminding yourself as often as possible. Whatever that feeling is at Burning Man that you have, right. how do you take that back? <laughs> how do you take that back? <laughs> what drug do I need? That's happening right now, by the way. As <laughs> yeah. we're talking, Burning Man is unfolding. People is are it ha- really? Yeah. Thousands never of people. Been, a lot of my friends go every year. I went one. Yeah, I just went once. I feel like I'm too old to go now. Nah. Okay. You're too old to go and do ecstasy four nights in a row. Okay. You're not too old to go. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm too old to like start on, a, you know, to explore that lifestyle. But just, no, you're right. I'm just not. bring a bike. I'll, I'll try it. Someday. Bring a bike, and I, you know, unless you're like a really hardy soul, like I would bring a camper. I would, I would have some sort of like substantial shelter. Okay. Tenting it out there in your 30s or whatever. No. You're going gonna to take your daughter someday. You're going to I would go again. So much my wife your wouldn't I, I couldn't I would have to like remember the A team that show? I would have to drug my wife. Like they used to drug Mr. Oh. T when they put him on the plane. <laughs> oh no. My wife would would no sooner go to Burning she'll Man. She'll wake up in this nightmare. Land. Yeah, she'll just wait she'll wake up on the playa and I'll be standing there in face paint and a feather boa. <laughs> Naked. Naked. Hey honey. <laughs> it's cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> We're free. We're finally free. Um yeah, you know, it's weird. I wish you could bottle it. It sounds like though you have your shit together, and you've got. Do I? <laughs> Does it sound I mean, more like... than the average person. Yeah. You've got like the spiritual side kind of like going. You've written a good book, got it published. You are resourceful. I am know? resourceful. I'll I'm, give you that. Come on, yeah. like doing all this stuff, like finding ways to survive and get a book written. You moved to Los Angeles, not an easy city to integrate into because mm-hmm. it's so big and sprawling. Have you found people? Yeah, I guess you had yeah, some people here. Yeah, I had people. I, I knew that I needed to move to a place where I had at least a little bit of community. Um, and then those people opened their arms so wide. I can't tell you how much I love my friends. And um, my friend Sarah from grad school lives out here. And uh, she introduced me to her writing group, an all-women's writing group of just super talented, um, experienced, successful women. And um, so we meet once a month. And that's really special for me. Who it's are the so women in this thing? Encouraging. I keep it's, hearing about all these women's groups in Los Angeles. Oh, there's a lot of. I'm also part of. I'm a, part of at least two other women's groups, and there's no it's men. So I mean, special. Men, men don't do this. No, I know. Well, you I didn't guess, need to because you right, know, right. No offense, but no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I, I mean, you should though. There should be I, community and camaraderie we watch of sports. all kinds. But I don't know what we do, um, you can have an all male writing group where you also tackle issues norm, of the norm core dad group yeah the norm core dad group but with the awareness that you know my friend is in you know an all-white anti-racism group and so they tackle the issues you go to that i don't i, I do want to go to there's one in la that i've been meaning to go to so it's all um, white people talking about how to handle or racism. it's anyone who wants to go but it's about um being in a from an oppressor society and how to um uh not be racist you know what what are our tiny racisms that we hold and we don't see and so so that's what um his group's about so your all-male writing group could be about um you know how do you present women in fiction and (laughs) and how do you view women in fiction uh no it's let's see who's in my writing group sarah eggers is a poet and painter um kate purdy is a tv writer uh, she writes for the, the McCarthy's, the McCarthy's, uh-huh. and right now, and um, BoJack Horseman, um, Stacy Elaine Duchot, uh, is an awesome essayist and artist, and uh, 
some gifted some gifted yeah, women some really gifted women yeah so they got a lot going on the list goes on but yes do you want to write for tv and film uh, I do, and I didn't mean to want to. <laughs> like, I moved here thinking... Well, there's actually how, money. You can actually know, make a living. But I moved here thinking how great it would be to be on the outside of this rat race. Yeah. Because I was so inside of it in Everybody's New try- York everybody, City. Everybody who lives in Los Angeles who's a writer has at least one toe in yeah. that water, and usually I'm interested, more. and I'm in also because, you know, I see my friends and my boyfriend, and everybody goes out and during the day, and collaborates and has so much fun with other people and i'm home alone yeah doing something (laughs) hopefully writing but (laughs) these days not right now but um and so i'm a little jealous of that collaboration and yeah i think i think i would thrive in it um so of course i wrote a pilot which i'm really proud of right probably nothing will ever happen with everyone's got their pilot yeah everyone has to have a pilot in the back of their pocket. I did it though because I'd written a novella and it was not working. I couldn't figure out what the story was and I thought, okay, I'll pressurize the tension by making it a screenplay for now. Um to really like just break it down to its most essential parts. I think that was a lesson that Nathan Englander gave us years ago in grad school. And Wait, where'd you go to grad school? Hunter College. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it worked and now I really like it as as a pilot instead of a novella so okay. you're shopping this... it around what are you doing with it no i'm doing Whoa. nothing with it yet. <laughs> Sitting in your drawer. <laughs> yeah it's i'm i would just want it to be the best thing it could be so i need to look at it again and revise and i'll show it to some friends and tv and see what happens see what happens yeah wow um and then you're working on another book yeah i'm writing a fantasy novel now really yeah were you into that as a kid i mean you're you're, are you a fantasy love... reader I'm not a huge fantasy reader. I love Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I love series like The Golden Compass um, or His Dark Materials is the series. And um, yeah, but I've, I was never a huge fantasy reader as a kid. I loved The Chronicles of Narnia then. But, um, but no, I just, I don't know. I just felt like writing a fantasy. And at like first wizards, it was... Like wizards and... There's wizards and dragons, <laughs> yeah. And um, at first it was just a game. It was just because I was depressed when my book was being shopped around and I didn't know what else to do with myself. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to write something fun and where, I had, where there were fewer stakes. But then I started taking it really seriously and I'm really proud of What's it. What's it called? The Story Eaters right now. Story Eaters. <laughs> yeah. What's the wizard's name? Ayelin. <laughs> <laughs> But it's about a little girl named Lorna. Okay. It's very, like, uh, centered around this woman. And, and also, <laughs> okay, I'll talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there's, some, there's, like, a time travel kind of rift thing that happens, but through magic, not science. And, um, and she, she meets herself as a woman later. So the little girl and woman are of Lorna. But both are Lorna. They adventure off together how far along are you i think i finished the i think it's two books and i finished the first one holy shit yeah could this be a series a two book series two two, (laughs) two and done i think so i don't know that's how i imagine it there's one more big thing to tell that's cool maybe i could go on if I really loved that world and wanted to be in it. Or enough. if suddenly, like this thing sells, and there's like you have no, yeah, or someone's paying me to be in it. That'd be <laughs> <Right>. great. <laughs> um, but right now, but there's I money haven't showed there's, it to anybody. There's money in wizards. 
Yeah. I feel like that's, uh, you know. You know it would be it. great to make money from my writing. Um, oh, my God. But for it also to be something that I loved and because um, there's definitely a lot of, like, <laughs> Buddhist stuff in this one. <laughs> like, in I the, don't know. In the fantasy? I, yeah. It's a, it's a strange book. So you're in, so, are you a Buddhist? No. No, but you're into Tina. I'm not really anything. You're not really anything. Yeah. But you like the Buddhism. Or I like the Buddhism, okay. and I like the TM, and um, I just like the ideas behind them all. And right. uh, but reluctant to like join a team or be like standing under a name. Or yeah, something. I, I'm okay right now as a secular Jew. Yeah, you know? I think that's a fine identity to have. Okay. Um, but I just went to Thailand, and you know, reading about extremist Buddhists, you know, who also do violence sure, upon yeah. others and well that's in so, a, in um in, in uh whatchamacallit in vietnam in uh, malaysia not malaysia uh, no it's uh where was it <laughs> burma in burma yeah what's what, what's what's it also called my, my brain is in, shot m- myanmar my, myanmar yeah. yeah 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 like there's like the anti-muslim buddhists yeah out there on like the periphery or whatever yeah. the, those people are crazy there's crazy in every so there, there's extremism yeah in every but every i feel like system. i feel like the buddhists like that's very that's anomalous more and so than other religions, more so than I, other. I think. Yeah. Um, but it's still, yeah, it's still a religion for sure. Yeah. For people who are serious about it. Um, yeah. So I don't really have, if there's community in any of these things that I'm a, a part of, it's still in Judaism. Um, there's still, even though I don't practice and I don't believe in God necessarily, if I go anywhere in the world, I can find a community. Of Jewish just, people, yeah, I can just say I, I'm Jewish, See, Jewish too, and, and Jewish people. There, there's like that's something I envy about uh, my friends who are Jewish. There is a connectivity, there is a cultural mm-hmm. something, uh, and a looking out for one another. Like no one gives a shit that I'm Catholic. I mean, maybe yeah. down in the South they'd be like, "Oh, you're Catholic," but no one like really cares. But like Jewish people, like there's like a, it's a culture, it's a thing. Yeah. And uh, I was reading, who is it? Um, who's Frank Rich's son? He's like you know some young genius who like wrote for Saturday Night Live when he was like nine or something. But well, anyway, Simon Rich. Okay. And he was I want to say I was reading a tweet from him or an essay from him or something from him, and he was talking about how like Jewish men when they turn like fifty get really serious about Israel. Like is that a thing? <laughs> that's like, that's maybe a thing. I don't think it's manifested for my dad that way necessarily, okay. but. Like as they get older, suddenly it's like Israel becomes very important to because right. of a, a sense of cultural identity and wanting it to continue, or a sense of legacy, maybe as you, yeah, are in the last half of your life. I don't know. Maybe so. Do you feel that? Do I feel connected to? I don't know Israel maybe. as a country. I feel we still haven't gotten into the politics. Yeah. Of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I I do shy away from talking about that because um, I guess I I do believe in coexistence and. Um, and my family there does work very hard, um, in different areas to forge, um, relationships between, um, Jews and Muslims. And, uh, I don't know. So it's hard to, do you have any hardliners in your family who are like, you know, like they got to go, there's no two state solution. Like, you know, the Zionists, right. Or whatever. No, we're all. Portland first, so we're all <laughs> liberals. Um, it is, it's weird to me when I do meet a Republican Jew 
I know a couple. On my flight to Israel, I, I sat next to a woman who was delightful until things turned. This was 2012. Uh-oh. <laughs> Holy cow. Did she hate Obama? I mean, hate. Wow. I mean, it was it was beyond. It was like next level. And, you know, he was just a, a demon, you know. And, I know uh, I live in a liberal bubble, but that's so weird to me. Yeah. Like, could because of the... I think, and, and and this goes for why there's community too. It's a we have a history of persecution, and um, and so we have um, come out of it liberal as hell, and and that's also I think why there's a a connection, you know, to strangers who are Jewish too. Um, that this is a shared heritage, and sure. Um, I mean, your people were also persecuted, but. It was That's a long time ago. But I mean, in, in, in the United States, like in the middle part of the 20th century, like the Catholic immigrants were like spit on. Yeah. And it was like a big thing when John Kennedy That's became true. president, you know, yeah, like, which seems huge. crazy to me now. Like, does it, who cares? You know, but um, it was that it was there. But yet I have no sense of that. I have no sense of shared history. That's of true. Being, but then maybe there was. Maybe so. It didn't carry over, shared. though. Right. It didn't carry over. And, and you know, to be. It seems like there's so many Catholics relative to how many Jews there are. There's a lot of Catholics all over the world. And there's right. how many Jewish people are there in the world? It's not really that know. many. It's not that many like relative to the global population. So maybe it's like a greater sense of oppression still exists for Jewish people in a way that it doesn't for Catholics. I really should know the answer to that. The, <laughs> the population are because in, in my book, West, the um, character of schizophrenia is is convinced that the Jewish population is on the decline is going to, um, die out is completely dying out. And that's why these Hasidic people he knows are doing weird things or so he thinks. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so I should know that number, but anyway, well, that's like a Jewish people, like Jewish parents are often like they want their daughters or their sons to marry another Jew to keep the thing going. Yeah. Do you feel that? Do you like, <laughs> do you like I want to meet a Jewish guy? I've never dated anyone Jewish ever. I, I don't know. What do they call They call, when a, when a Jewish guy dates a girl who's not Jewish, she's a shiksa. She's a, that's a derogatory term, yeah. Shiksa. Okay, it is a derogatory. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've used it many times. Like, oh, so you're the shiksa. Well, it's it's more colloquial now. So I don't think. Okay. It's yeah. It was, I've never seen it. Maybe like, it's incorporated enough to yeah, and people know that. So what's you the don't derogatory term for your your boyfriend? Like you know, if he's like not. I guess Jewish. he's a goy. A goy. Yeah. That's right. Um, but that doesn't sound as derogatory. I can't shiksa. imagine like a really angry Jewish grandmother saying saying it like she says a shiksa or a non <laughs> yeah yeah good Jewish grandmother um yeah my dad handed me a book once when I was dating um a Protestant from Mississippi um, <laughs> and I don't know if he's Protestant or not, I forget um he handed me a book called Why Marry Jewish <laughs> <laughs> so he wants you to yeah that's the last time he's and ever. first time he's ever said anything about it. It was very subtle. Just here's a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real read subtle. It, read it. Yeah, here's, a, <laughs> here's an entire 50,000 word, you know, diatribe about why. Yeah. Um, I didn't read it, though. You didn't? No. Do you have it? Or is it I know where it is. I think it's um, on a bookshelf in my childhood room that hasn't changed that much. Okay. Um, I should bring it down and <laughs> read it now. <laughs> I'm still not dating Jewish people, so... <laughs> Um, well, I am so happy to have had the chance to talk with you and, and happy to uh, have had the chance to spotlight your book in the TMB Book Club. It's great to do that with debuts. And uh, I know you're in for uh, an interesting ride, you know, both with this book and the tour and kind of like announcing yourself to the world as uh, an author. And then also with the wizard books that are coming on, <laughs> yeah. your pilot, who knows what's going to happen. Great. 
So yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. This is great. All right, folks. That's it. That's Carmiel Banaski. Uh, her novel is called The Suicide of Claire Bishop. It's available now from Dezank Books, her debut novel. Go get yourself a copy. Support a debut novelist. Carmiel Banaski, The Suicide of Claire Bishop. You can follow Carmiel on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Carmiel Banaski. She's also on uh, the Facebook, I believe. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get that app, the brand new Other People app, the newly refurbished, redesigned, reconfigured Other People app. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. Get the Other People app. It's free. Sign up for premium. Support the show. Oh, my God. If you want to uh, sign up for the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, Go do that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on book club in the menu bar. Participate in book culture. Get yourself a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Feed your head. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Tell me what you think. Tell me a story. Confess to me. Letters at otherppl.com. I need to wrap this up. I got to get inside. Here's what happens when you have kids, folks. You feel time pressure. You always feel whenever, like whenever I'm doing anything that doesn't involve me helping out uh, with the uh, kids, especially when I'm in close proximity, I feel guilty, feel like this pressure. I can feel my uh, wife, Carrie, being like, are you almost done? I've got two of them here. I feel that pressure. I feel like I need to go in and help. What am I doing? I'm talking to myself in a garage. It's not a good excuse. Or is it a good excuse? I guess it is kind of work. It's something I do. Something I'm committed to. I'm amassing a library of something. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just amassing a library of something. I don't know. I don't even know how to... <laughs> I don't even know how to follow that. Follow that. Amassing a library of something. Please remember that St. Jerome slept with works of Aristotle under his pillow and that Billie Holiday's bank balance at the time of her death was only 70 cents, but uh, hospital attendants found $750 taped to her leg. That's it for now. Thanks. I didn't mean to say that uh, in uh, too uh, happy of a voice. <laughs> I feel like I came off like a DJ kind of right there. I don't like when I do that. She OD'd on heroin and had 70 cents on her uh, in her bank account. But hospital attendants found $750 taped to her leg. It's fucked up. I fucked that up when I did that. I'm sorry. Uh, thanks to Carmiel Banaski for doing the show. And uh, thanks to Dezank Books. We're very uh, pleased to feature this novel in the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Thanks to you guys for listening, as always. Uh, you know how much I appreciate that, right? I love you guys. I appreciate your support. Thanks for all the tweeting. Thanks for sharing the news of the show via social. Thanks for spreading the word to friends verbally, analog style. I'll take whatever I can get. I'll be back next week with another episode or another, uh, another conversation with another author. You know how it works, right? Go get the app. You don't even have to do anything. The new episode will just be waiting for you. I'm not going to stop talking about the app until I, I've got a million people out there with the app. I've got a long way to go. I'm building this thing slowly, brick by brick. The tortoise and the hare. Last man standing. I'm just going to keep going. Nothing's going to stop me.
going to keep podcasting until this whole place goes up in a celluloid collar. I think Kurt Vonnegut used to say that, until the whole world goes up in a celluloid collar. Is that a thing? Am I just making that up? I could be totally making that up. <laughs> a celluloid collar could be a nothing. Can somebody email me and confirm if there's such a thing as a celluloid collar? <laughs>